And we're back for another episode of Start Apostle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Start a Puzzle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back. Another episode of Start a Puzzle. Matt DeCourcy here with Matt Watson. Hi, Matt. Hey, how's it going, man? Oh, just uh, another day here at the homestead, getting through a lot of great stuff. And, you know, I, I couldn't help but sit around and think, how's my COO doing? How, how is he dealing with all of the stuff that I consistently drop on his plate? All of the things that life drops on the plate and then all the stuff the employees kick back up to the plate. So I figured we would bring in an expert on being a COO. So with us today, we have Cameron Harold, who is the founder of the COO Alliance and to some people known as the CEO Whisperer. Hello, Cameron. Hey, Matt and Matt, how are you guys doing? Funny that you're actually based in uh, in Kansas City. I, I used to coach the CEO of Sprint and also the second in command of Sprint. So I actually um, sat behind the scenes with Marcelo Claret, who was the CEO and also had gone into his office a number of times, stayed at his home in Kansas City, stayed at his home in Miami uh, and was in his ear whispering when he was starting to do the turnaround for Sprint in the first 18 months. Wow. Yeah, well, you, you, were, you were right up the street from us in many ways, not only that Sprint campus that they built and then moved out of and then moved back into, but right. um, yeah, Marcelo didn't live too far away from us either, and he's a very interesting guy, so I'm sure you learned quite a bit. He has his hands full with WeWork now, so... He, he does have his hands full with WeWork. I was pinging him about that earlier this week, and then a, a really good friend of mine who um, worked with me on our PR team and our coaching business at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Uh, Christopher Bennett went on to become the head of digital and uh, communications for Sprint. He was leading the whole, the yellow Sprint digital campaigns. That was one of my good friends that went and worked in Kansas City for that for a couple of years too. Yeah, if you're from here, Sprint's become kind of a staple uh, uh, table item for most of us. And, and you know, like I said, they've had, they've had an interesting ride. They 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 like to be here and then they don't and then they come back and who knows. So, yeah. well, Cameron, before we get too far into this, what, what's your backstory? Give us a little bit of history about you and how you became the CEO Whisperer or the founder of the COO Alliance and let us know what problem you're solving with all that now too. Okay. Yeah. So I was, I was groomed as an entrepreneur. I was actually raised as a, um, as an entrepreneur. Um, my father ran his own company as did both my grandfathers and we were raised to run our own. So my brother, my sister, and myself each have been running our own companies for between 15 and 25 years each. Um, it's really all we've ever known. And I actually got my training, probably formal training of running businesses with a group called college pro painters. I think, but before I was 18 years old, I'd had about 15 different little business ventures. I did a, a main stage around on, on the Ted. If you go to the main Ted website, you'll see a talk that I did 10 years ago about raising entrepreneurial kids. Um, but college pro painters is where I cut my teeth. I was a, a franchisee for them for three years, um, had 12 employees when I was 21. In fact, I actually then had a chance to move to Kansas city. I was allowed to go to either Chicago, Boston, Kansas City, San Francisco, or Seattle. I picked Seattle to go and uh, open up the West Coast for College Pro Painters. 
That's where I hired Kimball Musk, who was Elon's brother, and then also his cousin, Peter Reeve, who built Solar City. They were both franchisees for me back in 93. Went on to, to build a chain of auto body collision repair shops. It was known as Void Auto Body in Canada. It's now called Gerber Auto Collision in the US. It became the largest collision repair chain in the world. I was then hired as the president of a private currency company, similar to what Bitcoin is doing, but we did it 20 years ago, sold our company in March of 2000. Um, and then I came in as the 14th employee for a group that was just transitioning over to the name 1-800-GOT-JUNK. It used to be called the Rubbish Boys. I came on as the 14th employee and as their chief operating officer. When I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees system-wide. We were in four countries, 330 cities. Uh, we'd gone from 2 million to 106 million in revenue. I left there 13 years ago this month, um, or 13 years ago, I guess a couple of weeks ago, and uh, started coaching CEOs. And then all of a sudden started having really good success with the CEOs I was coaching and people started pointing fingers at me saying, wait, like every company this guy's touching is turning to gold, what's happening? And it was just the systems that I'd used to grow all these companies that I kept kind of giving the cheat sheets to these entrepreneurial organizations. So I've been coaching real companies uh, globally. I've done paid speaking events now in 28 countries, um, and I've been coaching for 13 years. And then four years ago, a number of my CEOs that I coached asked me if I would coach their COO. And we realized there was a huge difference between the CEO and the COO in terms of skill set, mindset, what their day to day focus was. Um, and I was already pretty full with my coaching program. I coached, you know, 18 to 20 CEOs all the time. But I started an organization for their COOs to get together and work together and brainstorm together. So that's when we started the CO Alliance. And then in the last 10 years, I've also written five books. I wrote Double Double, Meeting Suck, Free PR, The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs, uh, and Vivid Vision. So that's kind of the, the lay of the land. So for those of you listening, you know I like it when you're interactive. So go to COOalliance.com and check out more about what they do there. It's really interesting. And also, as an individual, you can learn more about Cameron Harold at CameronHerald.com. And that's H-E-R-O-L-D. Um, as someone that has written three books myself, can you confirm that the best part about writing a book is finishing it? <laughs> yeah. And in fact, I, I found a really great organization that I'm an advisor and an investor in called Scribe. Uh, it used to be called Book in a Box, and they really helped pull the content out of the owner's mind and put it into print. So three of my five books um, I've written with Scribe. In fact, if anybody is thinking of writing a book, if they drop me an email, I can introduce you and fast track you to their team. But they're a great organization because I think better out loud. I think better walking around. And if I can actually just talk all of my content, they're really good at framing it and pulling it all together and then getting it out the door. But it's really tough to sit down and actually type out a book. Yeah, I did a lot of that myself. Just basic, ha had to learn about what what good transcription software was and what what it wasn't. But you can speak so much faster than you can type. So I'm going to actually redirect a question to Matt Watson, who can then possibly redirect it back to you, Matt. As a CEO of Stackify and the co-founder with myself at FullScale.io, which by the way, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by FullScale.io, helping you build software teams quickly and affordably. Matt, what do you look for most in the COO? I know you have one that's been with you for a long time at Stackify. I mean, what, are, what are some of the things that as a CEO you want to see in the person that's helping you run the business? Well, I, I think the answer to that varies a lot from company to company. Um, you know, one of the first questions I wanted to ask Cameron is, what does the COO do? Because it seems like every organization, the answer to that is different, you know? Um, 
you know, in some organizations they're in charge of, of just day-to-day operations, just very generically or sales or support or financial stuff, like all sorts of different, you know, depending on the industry. Right. And, you know, I come from more of a software background. So for me, it's usually dealing more with uh, customer service or, or sales, just day-to-day HR sort of crap nobody wants to deal with. But I mean, I think that's the first the first question for Cameron is how do you even define the roles of a COO, which seem very different from one company to another? So Matt Watson just nailed it, which is the, and Harvard actually wrote an article about this about 15 years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And the reality is it's a pure yin and yang relationship with the CEO. So one of the core reasons it's different company to company is every CEO has different strengths and unique abilities that they're really good at. The COO is supposed to be really good at the stuff that they suck at, right? So let's say Matt was really good as an example with engineering and operations and marketing. He would want a COO who's really good at, you know, customer service and IT and legal and finance and sales. But if Matt happened to be really good at sales and operations and um, PR and hated IT and operations and engineering, then his COO would be really good at that. So in every single case, in fact, even on my second in command podcast, if you listen, listen to the different guests we have on, some of them run, run finance, some don't, some run IT, some don't. Harley, who was one of our guests from, from Shopify about two years ago, Harley Finkelstein is the COO there. He does not run engineering and he runs operations and business development and sales, but Tobias runs engineering and IT. And when I was 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I didn't run. So it's very different that way. Second thing that you have to look for is a pure level of trust that is almost so implicit that day one, you would give them the keys to the operation, all of your codes, your your passwords, let them take care of your kids. Um, You really, truly trust them. And when I came in as the COO at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, Brian and I were very lucky. Two months before I joined him, he was my best man at my wedding. So we already had a four and a half year track record of really getting to know each other before we actually even started to work together. Um, And then lastly is there's also different types of of evolutions that you're in in your company, whether it's the heir apparent, maybe the CEO is moving aside and they want someone to transition, or maybe it's a change agent, you're bringing in a COO to really change and restructure and redo the organization. Um, Or maybe it's the, the real partner, you know, that yin and yang approach. So there's lots of different reasons. And it's very different from the from any other role in the organization. Well, in, in some companies, isn't the CEO more visionary? And then the COO is the one who's actually got to make the shit work? Yeah. In fact, um, a friend of mine, Gino Wickman, wrote a book called Traction, EOS Traction. And one of the things they got was the visionary and integrator. And the visionary was the one to kind of hold up the light as to where we were going. The integrator was to figure out how to make that happen. Um, so that's pretty true in virtually every CEO, COO role, that there is the, um, the vision and integrator side. And funny, one of the reasons I even started my second in command podcast was everyone interviews the entrepreneur. I wanted the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. You know, if you interview Brian and you ask Brian at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, how did you grow the company? He, in, in fact, if you listen to him on how I built this, it would be a very true um, portrayal of how we built 1-800-GOT-JUNK. But if you listen to me tell the story of how we built it, it would be very different, right? I would talk about some very core operational strategic things that we did that maybe didn't even get noticed at times, but had we not done them, we never would have grown. And Brian's story is very true as well. Almost like a husband and wife raising their kids, right? Both have very true stories, but they're both very different. You know, you, you just mentioned something about the trust factor. And uh, all right, at 
full scale, I've had the luxury of art. The company's only two years old, but I had worked for several years and on other businesses with our current COO. So I had a high level of trust. How do you how do you get arrive at that point when you don't know your COO prior to them showing up for an interview? Is there a way to get past that, or there's some things that because without the trust, you it, it can really, really, really downgrade your confidence and being able to have great ideas and see them through. Yeah, and funny because you mentioned Kyle from um, Full Scale is going to be on an upcoming episode of the C of the Second in Command podcast too. He's actually been coming up, I think. A couple, he'll be out by the time we launch this one. So um, I have the, the author of the book, Who, um, Jeff Smart, speaking at our next CEO Alliance event and walking all of our members through the best operational systems to interview and onboard an employee. And that's really what you're, what you're looking at here is how do you truly grill them? How do you properly do torque, which is the threat of reference check? How do you actually do real reference checks? How do you get multiple members of your team interviewing them? Um, and it's truly, really, really digging into the core of the essence of these people on their behavioral traits, their skill sets, their past, any of the gaps, um, and really interviewing strong. Most companies have never actually been trained in interviewing. You know, if you think about when employees are running around and saying, oh, our employees suck, or it's really hard to run a business. Well, no, but you've never had any training on how to interview people or how to hire people or how to onboard people or how to do project management or how to run meetings. So, of course, running a business is tough. You have no skills. You know, it'd be like playing a baseball game without ever being trained on how to throw a ball or catch a ball or hit a ball. Baseball would suck too, right? Because you suck at baseball. So it's really getting the, the operational skills into your company for interviewing um, and also for recruiting. You know, you only actually want to even be spending time with the candidates who really want to be a part of your organization, who are completely aligned with what you're building and the way you already kind of build yourself. So you know, have you ever done an operations manual for Matt DeCorsi? Like, is there a is there a 10 page? And I actually mean a 10 page operational manual on how you tick, how you think, how you piss people off, how you you gain their trust so that a COO coming in can know everything about you day one. That the how I piss people off part might be more than 10 pages. <laughs> but, it, but, again, but it should be right. So imagine if you had to write an operations manual about you and it was really out there. And you gave that to the COO candidates and said, this is me. Like, if this doesn't fucking sound amazing to you, you don't want to be here. Now, imagine if they had to submit one to you as part of their interview process, the real operational issues, so that you really actually know them. The A players would write one. The A players. I, I, I don't have a written version, but I have a spoken version that I, it's like the third interview. Kind of like, hey, I just, before you jump in here, I want you to know on some days I can be difficult <laughs> and wow. it's not, and, but I'll tell them why. And I'll say, you know, and I'll say, look, and, and it has to do with being passionate about certain things and wanting everyone to win. And, you know, it's not, I mean, I just like to let people know that. And there are some ways to avoid the bad mat and some ways to accentuate the great mat. But I think that being upfront and transparent with people is a good way to, to get out there because some people don't work the same way that I would want to, you know, and, and right. some, people, some people, some people do, some people don't. And I've had people that have been at that point where that could have been a good fit. And I talked to them. I'm like, I just don't think you're going to make it here. And that's, that's where the trust starts getting developed is that radical honesty, 
the um, the, the throwing conflict right out on the table right away to, to really actually being vulnerable and, and opening up the kimono, both of you. So you really, really actually get to know who the other person is. Trust actually gets built off of that. I'd like Watson to answer that similar question about the owner's manual. Cause you, you look at Matt and Matt's on his second successful startup. The first one was a, was a huge hit. So how do you come into that? And, and, you know, what's your owner's manual with that, Matt? Um, mine probably says to hire a COO to write the owner's manual. <laughs> well, Sounds about get, right. your current, get your current team to write the operations manual for you, right? Uh, what would your current employees, how would they describe you in complete and utter honesty, right? Yeah. Current um, or past. It's just a really, <laughs> I mean, it's a really interesting thought. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an example of that very visionary person and not an operations person, so... So when it comes to business, the operations are what are going to determine the success or failure. It's uh, We've had many meetings, and I'm not afraid to admit this. We say, you know, we're an organization filled with A-plus ideas and C-minus execution. How do we fix that? And I'd love to hear your take on that, Cameron, because it's really – I don't think that having um, – big ideas is the hard part. I, that's the easy part. Like, I feel like I discard them all day, every day on, on at some moments, it's getting it to actually happen. And that's where that COO is crucial. Well, it's the, it's the COO is crucial, but also really having a true a level and solid B plus team, right? If you think about, you know, even any sports team for an executive, like a players are racehorses, B players are workhorses, C players have to go to the glue factory. But the reality is we don't get rid of our C players fast enough. We don't work. And then we spend all of our time trying to manage C players, grow C players, hold C players accountable. Like if I hear one more entrepreneur say, how do I hold my people accountable? I'm going to lose my fucking mind. You don't hold people accountable. You hire accountable people. You don't, you don't manage people. You help, you hire self-managed people. You help, you hire, you don't motivate people. You hire people that wake up in the morning, knocking the cover off the ball and wanting to motivate themselves. And you inspire them and show them direction. You get out of their fucking way. So the reason that most businesses struggle is we don't know what we're looking for. We don't truly know how to roll out a vivid vision to inspire people. We don't actually know how to recruit them. We spend all of our time and our HR time reading through a bunch of resumes of people that don't even go through the first two hoops to know if they're worth even spending time with. Um, And then we don't know how to recruit them and interview them and onboard them, right? So a lot of the real leadership of a company is truly how to build out your A-level and B-level team. I love solid B-plus people. They're great, but you can't have any of the Cs. You also can't have any of the cultural, you know, the cultural toxic people in the organization, the people that drive everybody crazy or piss you off or those people have to go too. Yeah. One of the things that when it comes to recruiting and hiring, I've, I've had this theory for years and it's always held water is that gr- great people are great right away. You talk about these C level people and spending all your time trying to turn them into something that they either don't want to be, yeah. can't be, or will never be. And, you know, so is it as, is it as easy as eliminating that as soon as you figure out you're yeah. a C person, you just don't wait? Yes. I was, okay. at, a, I was at a wedding um, six years ago for someone who was in the, in the Navy SEALs. He was on SEAL Team 6 and he was on the Black Ops team of SEAL Team 6. So there's 12 SEAL teams. He was on the, the most elite, which is SEAL 6, and he was on the, the Black Ops team. Of, so he was on the fucking crazy motherfuckers of the craziest of the groups, right? Could you could you imagine any of the SEALs ever allowing a C player to be in their squad? 
No way. No way. They would be gone because they know that their life is at risk. Their mission is at risk. Their fun is at risk. No way. It was so bizarre being at the after party with these guys in this bar in Norfolk, Virginia, or Virginia Beach, and watching the, the way that none of these guys ever had their back to a window or a door. Like they were always positioned in areas. And if anybody ever talked to one of their other girlfriends or wives, these guys would like, there was a beat down happening from like, they were, they were a force, but that's how most companies, like the really good companies, that's what they obsess about. You know, when we built 1-800-GOT-JUNK, we ranked as the number two company in Canada to work for. There's 1.46 million companies here. We ranked number two. We were twice ranked number one in British Columbia to work for. That doesn't happen by accident. That's not the massages and the free lunches. That's the obsession with building out the team and getting rid of any of the assholes. Because when you get rid of all that negative energy or the underperforming energy, it allows the A's and B's to spiral up. Yeah. Well, that's but, we, go, go ahead, Matt. I mean, my question is, so I, I get that and it makes total sense when you have 20 employees, but when you have thousands of employees, yeah. how do you still accomplish that? You, you, you go down to kind of the, the, the group levels and you make sure that at your executive team, you don't have any of the assholes. So I'll, I'll give you an example. I was sitting in the Sprint head office. I'd have to go back and check the dates, but I'm going to guess it was about August of 2015. Um, Marcelo had been in the role of CEO for about six months. I was sitting, I had to go through three rounds of reception just to get into his private office in his private boardroom, just he and I meeting for about an hour and a half before we went to his home for dinner that night. And we were going through his leadership team and we were putting red X's over certain people's names. And we were talking about this one guy who had a C, a C title. I won't give you the title. And Marcelo said something to the effect of, I can't fire this guy. He's been with the company for 27 years. And I said, but you've just spent the last 15 minutes telling me what an asshole he is, what an underperformer he is, how big he is in the politics. You've got to get rid of him. And I, last time I checked, you're the CEO. And Marcelo took out the red pen and put an X through his name. Marcelo went in and cut anybody cut expenses, cut private jets, cut like he went in and just slashed all the waste to begin a turnaround. That was a massive organization, but he treated it. So you grow big and you act small. Um, I had a mentor who was being groomed as the second in command at Starbucks. He coached me for a year and a half when I was COO at Got Junk. And one of the days when I went down to spend a full day at the head office in Starbucks in Seattle, we were walking around and there was a big mantra on the wall, huge, like six, you know, six, eight inch letters. And it said, grow big, act small. So they just refuse to become corporate. They refuse to, to orbit, or they kind of orbit that giant hairball that can become corporate. And you empower people, right? You allow your leaders and managers to get rid of the bad people. You allow them to hire the right people. You, you manage on the results-only work environment. You manage on OKRs. So we mentioned at the, at the top of the show that you had the nickname, the CEO Whisperer. Mm -hmm. What, what, uh, you know, when I hear that, that's obviously, you know, someone that, well, the dog whisperer comes in and makes bad dogs good. However it is, it could be that calming presence or maybe a little bit of structure or something like that. Why do they call you the CEO whisperer? I mean, what do you do that, that brings out the best and people that are already supposed to be the best? I was, um, I was speaking at a conference in San Francisco and um, the person who was introducing me was the publisher of Forbes magazine, so the print edition, Rich Carlgaard. And Rich had seen me speak three times before in the last 24 months. And we were sitting having lunch before I went live. And I, I forget which companies I was talking about, like Grasshopper and Media Temple and a number of businesses that I'd helped coach. And he said, 
he's like, you're kind of the CEO whisperer. You're kind of like in their, their back pocket and telling them what to do. And so he, he gave me the title and then on stage introduced me as that CEO whisperer. I also don't work with turnarounds. I don't work with broken companies. So there might be a little bit of that too, right? That I only, you know, the only reason everything I touch turns to gold is I only touch gold. I don't work with bad, broken companies. I work with really good companies that are ready, ready to accelerate. And then I've always looked at entrepreneurs. I was the dumb kid in school, so I got 62% in college. I went to the only college that accepted me. Um, got about the same in high school, but I was too busy and, and doing other things to care about school. But I always looked for the cheat sheets. I looked for the, the shortcuts to get through. And I've always felt like entrepreneurs are like flies and they're going to work harder. You know, we're going to keep banging our head on that window because we're going to get out. But there's a door, right? If you just turn and go out the door, you can get out the door. And I've always been the one to try to give the entrepreneurial companies the cheat sheets, the simple systems to just scale. And I learned a lot of those at College Pro Painters, right? We had to go out and recruit 800 franchisees every summer. We had to train those 800 franchisees how to run a business. And then they had to go out and hire 8,000 painters in a month. And between May 1st and August 31st, we had to produce $64 million in, in houses. And then September 1st, 8,800 kids would go back to school and we would do it again. And I was in the top 30 people of that company globally. So when you learn how to operationalize recruiting, interviewing, selection, training, and onboarding, and then you learn how to operationalize operations and execution, and you realize that if you turn the business into a little bit more than a business, a little bit less than a religion, if you can get into that zone of a cult, then you win. Right. And we charged a premium price for it. So that's all. That's what I focus on is that stuff. Matt, I've been right all these years about wanting to start a cult. <laughs> Spot on. I can't imagine the uh, seasonal business like that where you've got to hire all these people for three months or four months or whatever. And there's a lot of companies that do it every holiday season. But I just can't imagine that type of ramp up and ramp down like that. That's crazy. Yeah, it's it's really when people talk about seasonality in companies, we we probably experience the worst seasonality of all. When you go to zero for eight months, mm -hmm. right, zero revenue, and then it was kind of like early April, executive teams were like not drawing salaries, not submitting expenses, mortgaging our homes, trying to, to use that cash to hit payroll, which would start May seventh. It's crazy, okay. mm -hmm. Watson. I got another question for you. If a CEO, a CEO whisperer whispered in your ear, what would they likely tell you? Probably I need to fire some people. <laughs> no, I, I had a mentor sit down with me one time and he said, is there anybody that you know you have to fire? And I said, yeah. He said, what's his name? And I said, Tyler. And he said, well, how long have you known you should fire him? I was like, I don't know, like four or five months, maybe six months. He goes, why haven't you done it yet? I started giving him all the reasons, right? Maybe I can coach him. Maybe he'll do better. I feel bad for him. We're kind of busy. He's doing pretty good. It's not that bad. And, and Rob listened and he said, so basically you're chicken. And I went, yeah, pretty much. He said, when are you going to fire him? This was a Tuesday morning, 730 in the morning at Denny's. And uh, I said, I'll, I'll fire him by Friday. And Rob shook his head and I said, okay, I'll fire him tomorrow. He shook his head again. He said, tomorrow's not soon enough. I said, fine, I'll fire him today. He said, good. What time today are you going to fire Tyler? <laughs> I said, I'll do it at 12 o'clock. He said, good. Call me at 1230 because I'll be there for you because I know this is going to be a hard one, but you make sure you're there for Tyler because he said for the last six months that you haven't fired Tyler, you've picked on him, you've excluded him, you've shown him all the stuff he's screwing up. You've crushed the will of a human being because you didn't have the courage to act like a leader. 
So go back to the office, fire Tyler, but make sure you're there until he gets back on his feet because you failed him as a leader for the last six months. I went back to the office, <clears throat> 8 a.m., put my bag down. I said, Ty, can I grab you for a sec? We walked into one of the boardrooms, closed the door, and we both were standing looking at each other. Both of us had tears in our eyes, and Tyler spoke first, and he said, what took you so long? And then he said, I told my mom three months ago you were firing me. He's like, I'm the guy that got us on Oprah, but I know this is the right decision, but why did you wait so long? He said, I haven't had the courage to quit because I didn't want to let you down, but I know this is the right decision. Like, and you know, then, then we went on and, and helped Tyler get back on his feet, helped him start his own PR company. Um, about six, seven years later, I would get emails and text messages from Tyler saying, hope you're well, thinking about you. I got a, an email from him about six years later saying, thank you for making one of your toughest business decisions. Thank you for setting me free. I got another call about six weeks later that Tyler had gone out on a five-day hike from Squamish to Coquitlam in British Columbia, and his body had gone missing. Um, we've never found Tyler. It was a, a six six thousand person or six thousand hour um, search and rescue, low flying planes, helicopters. We found ski pole tracks and footprints, and never found the body. And no. I I can live with myself because I know I finally did it, but the um, that's always haunted me of, of, and I teach all my clients that, that when you know you have people, you have to let go. You have to do it today. So I, I have a question related to that. Was the thing that was holding you up and firing him, was it that you liked him? It, like, was, it was everything. I liked him. He was a really close friend. He was doing pretty good at times. He was, um, but he was an emotional train wreck. And he was really hard to manage when we were scaling a company to have someone who was this emotional bipolar train wreck. <laughs> um, he would argue with us. His ego was getting in the way on things. Um, but and I thought I could turn him around. I hoped I could coach him. I, I maybe with, and I was busy. Fuck, we were like, we, we did six consecutive years of 100% revenue growth. So we were into our third year of 100% revenue growth. Um, there, you know, maybe I can hire some other people to work around them. There was lots of reasons. Yeah, I think that I think that releasing someone, or as we sometimes say. <clears throat> opening up their opening up their future for other endeavors, you know, setting them free in many regards. I think you hit it on the head. Like you weren't doing the guy any favors by, you, know, you knew what the, the inevitable thing was. I've, I, uh, many, many, many years ago, I got the advice that the best time to let someone go is almost always the first time it crosses your mind because you're telling yourself anything past that, you're rationalizing why you shouldn't. And I've spent a lot of years thinking about that because it's easy to get upset with someone if things don't go well or maybe, but if you think about it, you're not like, man, I need to can this person. I need to, I need to let him go. So there's something about, and I think that's gotten for myself, that's gotten a little easier as I've gotten older. I've learned to trust my, that trust my gut as they yeah. say it, which is, is really interesting because the gut's almost always right. When you, have, when you have doubt, you have no doubt. Yeah, true. And true. Then, but here's, here's where the real leadership growth comes in. Why did you hire him in the first place? What, what, was, what happened and what went wrong in the onboarding? What happened in the marketing? Why, and the, the, the management of him? What, why has it been six months? Like, How do you debrief on yourself to learn better, to not do it again, to help lead people or grow people? You know, if all of these things have been stacking up that have been frustrating you, why were you not coaching them on those three months ago or two months ago? You know, what, what was it that led to this, this point? You know, if Tyler was telling his mom three months before that he was going to get fired, 
why weren't we having those discussions? Why was the trust not there? What what had broken down in the organization? Or why was I so busy that we couldn't like? Well, I think in a, as a super small company, some of these things are so much harder, though. What What is your opinion on on that part of it, where it's like, you don't have a lot of employees. So if I fire Tyler, and there's nobody else to take his place, because it's a super small company, what what do you do in those scenarios? So, and this is the, it's the excuse that we tell ourselves: my area is different, my business is different, my industry is different, my my situation is different. No, you're chicken. Um, so, what would you do if you got a phone call right now that that person that you're thinking about by anybody who's listening, if you got a phone call right now and the person that you're thinking of firing, you find out they were just hit by a truck and killed, they're dead, they just died. You got the phone call you would quickly make a list and be like, oh, fuck, I got to replace them. What are all the things I got to do to replace them? You'd make a list of all the things you had to do to replace them. Put those in order of impact, the highest impact things to do quickly. Fire him and start working on your list. Once again with us today, we've got Cameron Harold, founder of the COO Alliance. Make sure to go to COOalliance.com to learn more about what it takes to be a COO, be the second in command. You will find a lot of links in the show notes, both to Cameron's personal website, the COO Alliance, as well as the second in command podcast. So, you know, we've, we've covered, this is getting kind of deep here and talking about some of the things that we do might do well or don't. Um, you know, I, I couldn't agree more with some of the statements that you had about letting people go when it, when the time is right. I, and to kind of answer your question, Matt, I think it comes down to is like, will you truly notice that person is gone? And, you know, well, like, when you may, you, you yeah. may notice they're gone. But the reality is that if like, let's say that you have to get rid of the high results person who's doing great, kicking ass, they're the only one who knows your code, they're the best engineer or the best salesperson or whatever. But they're assholes. If they're cultural cancers, you have to get those cultural cancers. Those are the hardest ones to get rid of the cultural cancers who are getting good results, but those are the ones that destroy the fabric of the company. Those are the ones where the good employees are going, well, why are you taking care of that jerk so that demotivates them, mm-hmm. right? Why are you giving that jerk the private office? Why, oh, oh great, we won't let him, we won't make him come on the retreat because he's a jerk, but we ha- we get to go, wow, that's super fun. Um, like what ends up happening is you end up taking care of the wrong horses. Your A players are racehorses, the B players are workhorses, the C players, and C players can be results or values-based, have to go to the glue factory. You have to make the cuts. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that. So, Matt, when in your past history as an entrepreneur and a leader at companies, what have been some of the things that have stopped you from making tough decisions? Well, I think some of the, the tough decisions have always been around firing people. I, I mean, I think Cameron's absolutely right. And we, we make a lot of excuses. Um, I think one of the things that I've always realized about myself, and I probably told you this before, you know, you get those gut feelings and you don't, you don't follow them. And I feel like that's a mistake that, you know, we probably all make, but it's a mistake that I have definitely made time and time again, where I'm like, I keep telling myself, I got to start following my gut more often. You know, that's something I have to tell myself all the time. It's one of the reasons why in sport, the best athletes on the world have coaches is the best, best athletes in the world recognize that they need someone to call them on their shit, to show them what they're not seeing, to remove their obstacles, to give them confidence on the areas they're struggling at. You know, look, Marcelo Claret, when he was the CEO of Sprint, 
He'd already built Brightstar and sold it for over a billion dollars to SoftBank. So he wasn't a telco guy. Marcelo came in appointed as the CEO of Sprint to turn it around for SoftBank because they owned 83% of, of Sprint, but they also had just paid Marcelo a billion dollars for his own company. He wasn't running Sprint for the money. He already had the money. He was best friends with David Beckham. He's buying a soccer team in Miami. Like he had all the cash. Marcelo didn't need a coach to teach him how to be the CEO of Sprint. He was pretty freaking capable. But here's this guy who has no business being in the telco world. I didn't understand. I don't know anything about the cell phone business. I've never worked in a big corporate organization, but here I am sitting in the background, coaching Marcelo on some stuff with his team, coaching Jamie Jones, who was the second in command for 18 months. Why, why was that? You know, what was it that I was doing that was, it's because I could do things that maybe would nudge him to do the stuff that he already knew he had to do, but he wasn't doing yet. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think some of that secondary confirmation, especially when it comes from outside eyes or an outside opinion, because it's easy to come into a situation you're not close to. Well, it's not always easy, but it can be easy to come in and you can spot some glaring issues right away. You're like, whoa, whoa, like, do you not notice that this is an issue? Sometimes you have to dig a little bit deeper. And uh, you, it's and you can all different. Yep. And you can, also notice some you can also notice some massive strengths in organizations that they don't necessarily see because they take them for granted that they're not leveraging enough. You know, and when you really can kick it on that flywheel, like when I came into 1-800-GOT-JUMP, two of the first things that I actually, there were three things that I really instituted right away. The first one was that we had to raise our prices by 45% and it freaked everybody out. But day one, I took our prices from 238 to $258 for a full truck to about $400 for a full truck literally like freaked everybody out. But I'm like, no one's making money. The franchisees aren't making money. We're not making money. We can't deliver what we want to deliver. So we're going to charge a premium. Second thing was we wanted to turn the company into a cult. And if we could turn it into a cult and get somewhere between that zone of business and religion, we would win. And then the third thing was leverage free PR. How much free publicity could we get about our company? Because we didn't have any money for advertising. So we landed 5,200 stories about our company in six years, including being on Oprah. That began the fuel. So those were our three flywheels that we really focused on, driving a premium price, building a cult, and leveraging free PR. But from the outside, if nobody noticed that, we never would have done it. We would have thought it was about junk removal. Our business had nothing to do with junk removal. It's kind of like I've, I've said that in pretty much any company, including Fullscale, I'll say, hey, look, we're we are in the business of marketing, and we just happen to provide tech services. Right. Or something along those lines, because I, I don't know, I've just always found that sales cures ales. So once again, with us today, Cameron Harold, author, COO, Alliance, founder, CEO, Whisperer, man of many, many, many voices, we could say. And with that, we end our episodes of Startup Hustle with what we lovingly call the founder's freestyle. And we'll pass the mic around. I'll let you start, Cameron. What is some advice that you could give to a startup founder anywhere? The most universal anythings. I'll give you one. Do you want a few of them or one big one? You can. You can, It's your freestyle. You can lay it out however you want. You can sing it if you want. <laughs> I'll give you a couple then. One, one is um, to focus on what I call focus, faith, and effort as the secret formula. That if you focus on... How focused are you or your company or yourself or your teams on a percentage scale of one through 100%? If you measure that on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, give yourself a percentage focus. Then give yourself a, a, on faith. How much faith do you have in yourself, your team, the economy, your market? Are you protecting your confidence? And give yourself a percentage score on faith from zero to 100%. 
And then you multiply in the, the effort component. How much effort are you putting in? Are you really working hard? Are you hard, hardly working? Is the team really cranking it? Or are they just fluffing it around? And give yourself a percentage score of one to 100%. <clears throat> and then you multiply out the results. If you had 50% focus times 50% faith times 50% effort, you get a 12.5% chance of success. Even if you get to 80% focus times 80% faith times 80% effort, you get a 51.2% chance of success. That real results, even to get to 90% times 90% times 90%, still only gives you a 72% chance of success. That's really a 28% chance of failure, right? To really, truly knock the cover off the ball as an entrepreneurial company, it's 98% focus, 98% faith, 98% effort. That gives you a 94% chance of result. That's really where you got to be focused. And most won't go there. The second thing that I give everybody right now is that none of us are getting out of this alive. Right? At the end of the day, we're all going to die. None of this actually matters. This is just what we're doing to make money and to not take ourselves so effing seriously and have a little fun along the way. Because the reality is for us, for our employees, for everybody, it's just what we're doing to pay the bills. It's just what we do to, to, to buy our vacations or whatever. This isn't, and even if it is our reason for living or this, we love business, we're all going to die anyway. So like have some fun along the way. Master Watson. Ooh, I got to follow that. Man. <laughs> That's why I go last, dude. You know, uh, a couple things. You know, we, we talked earlier about what is a COO. And, you know, one thing I would I would give a suggestion to everybody is um, having that right combination of somebody who's the visionary, who can drive the company forward, and having the COO. That, that pairing, the visionary, the integrator, I think is really important. Um, I know for my company, Stackify Today, that's really important. Without our COO, we would be in so much trouble. Um, and, and then I think the other thing we've talked about a couple times before, to just reiterate, reiterate again, was following your gut on these things. I really love the, uh, the um, analogy of you're either a racehorse or a workhorse, or you should be at the glue factory. I really like that analogy, and uh, I might use that later today. Um, uh -oh. And I think I might have to fire a couple of people before noon today. So I might call you Cameron for some support. You should do it. If you already know that you should do it, set them free. Yep. Oh, well, I'm not sniffing glue that you guys make at the glue factory. <laughs> Although as a CEO and a founder on some days, that's what I'd like to do. Honestly, I, I think if I had to give a founder or CEO advice, is just because you can do it doesn't mean you should be doing it. And I say that because, you know, there's, I'm probably capable of managing or running any department at full scale, but I can't, I can't do all of them. We have a couple hundred employees. We're growing super fast. We're doing a lot of different stuff. And is that what I should be doing is what I wake up and do every day as the CEO the most valuable service that I can provide to my enterprise, to my employees and to my clients. And that is, you know, and then if you start to look at it like that, you're like, oh, wow, I'm spending kind of, you know, Cameron, you broke it down in percentages. What percentage of my day am I spending doing things that realistically should be delegated? Can oh. I spend the same time going out, trying to find a new client, trying to create some direction, trying to do something. And, you know, we have a, company that's at 200 employees at two years old. And you talk about, you know, we did put operations first because much like writing bad code accumulates technical debt, 
you can have operational debt too, that you're going to eventually have to go. We figured that out after about six months. We said, man, if we don't get our, if we don't get out in front of some of this stuff now, this is going to be an ungodly mess to clean up. Now oh, it really? took me, took me till I was 43 years old to be able to actually recognize that. And that comes from I, in my book, million dollar bedroom, I actually have a, I talk about undoing the ball of rubber bands because mm -hmm. the right answer isn't to put another rubber band on the ball. Never. And I, you know, I, I just, I, I'm fortunate to have people around that have been patient enough, but also seeing the vision that we have. And I think that's important too. And having some patience, you can know, I give you, can I give you one word to add to your to-do list that will change everything? And it Please. exactly what you just said, add the word who it's the who to-do list. When CEOs or executives sit down and they make their list of what needs to get done, great, but not by you. It's the who to, like, who should do this? Who should do this? Who should do this on every item on your list? It's just because it's on your list doesn't mean you have to do it. What, yeah, I, I think the biggest challenge we have, I think the biggest challenge we have is not feeling like we have somebody that can do it. I think that's the biggest problem. That's coaching your team. That's really coaching the team on delegation and growing their people. That if we flip the org chart upside down, that our job is to grow people's skills and confidence, that our job is not to do work. Our job is to grow our people. So if we don't have people that we can delegate to, then we should go get them or we should grow the ones we have. Like you'd imagine the coach of the Kansas City Royals hopping out onto the field to throw the ball because he doesn't have any pitchers. Like, no, you'd get some more pitchers. Based on last season, that was a strong possibility at any point. So, <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's the greatest reference, but I hear where you're coming from on that. Well, man, Cameron, thank you so much. I know you're a busy guy. I really appreciate you not only having our, our COO on the Second in Command podcast. For those of you listening, they're probably coming out right around the same time. Go check out his podcast. Check out the show notes. Click the link. Make sure you give him a five-star review. Hit subscribe. All that stuff. The guy's obviously got a lot of great stuff to say when you're done listening to that come back and check out some more episodes of startup hustle i'm gonna get busy i got a whole lot of i got a whole lot of notes and things i got to get moving on now so i'll see you guys next time thank you thanks guys startup hustles brought to you by fullscale.io helping you build a software team quickly and affordably make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button then come find us on instagram See you next time.